0: All right, are you ready for the word this morning? Yes. All right. Uh, this week, uh, this is the second part of a three-part series called Bible Roads, and you know there's many roads in life. There's many roads in the Bible we, we could talk about, right? The Emmaus Road, the Damascus Road. But uh, this series is about three roads that Jesus walked specifically for us. He walked these roads to. to to do something for us or to show us something. So last week, we looked at the road to the wilderness, where Jesus walked there to show us how to deal with temptation. So this morning's message is entitled, The Road to Jerusalem. And so if you could turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, turn in your Bibles or your devices there to Luke chapter 9. We're going to start there. And as you're turning there, I want to give you some big picture ideas uh, of what this journey is about, this road that Jesus is on that we're calling the road to Jerusalem. Now, many of you may know this is Palm Sunday, right? And uh, most often when we think about the road to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, we're thinking about when Jesus came in riding on a donkey and people were waving palm branches and they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. And you know, that is certainly a part of it and it's a wonderful part of it and uh, on which many awesome sermons will be preached across the world, but it's only the last part of this journey, of this road to Jerusalem. So today, I want to kind of zoom out a little bit with you, if we can, and look at the entire road to Jerusalem. It's kind of like being at the Grand Canyon. Any of you ever been to the Grand Canyon? You know, sometimes you want to take a a, a trip down into the canyon where you can get up really close and see some of the uh, amazing detail and little things that are there. And other times, you want to just kind of step back and take a a breathtaking look at the awesomeness of of, of the entire picture, right? Well, you know, sometimes studying God's Word is like that. Sometimes you want to uh, dig down deep and uh, examine all of the small details and be amazed at the intricacy of the message. And other times, it's good to kind of like step back, right, and get a breathtaking glimpse of the awesome, amazingness of of God's plan. And so this is one of those kind of step-back sermons, all right? And uh, so... We're going to take a big picture look at this last journey to Jerusalem, beginning all the way back on the north side of the Sea of Galilee and all the way through the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And so as we do, we're going to see uh, something of the amazing heart of Jesus for us. He's an amazing Savior. And as he walks on this road to Jerusalem, we're going to see some amazing things about Jesus. And so, as we look at all of the Gospels, and we put together all of the accounts of Jesus' travels, we believe that Jesus made several trips to Jerusalem uh, during the three years of his public ministry. And so the trip we're looking at today is his last trip to Jerusalem. It's the last time he will walk this road to Jerusalem, and, you know, there's a lot that happened on this road. The Gospel of Luke actually devotes about 10 chapters to this road to Jerusalem, beginning near the end of chapter 9. So let me start by showing you a map of Jesus to Jerusalem. You see there, he started way in the north, right, uh, to the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And he comes down through Galilee and into Samaria and then uh, takes a a left turn uh, heading east over and crosses the Jordan River and uh, into Perea and then comes down along the Jordan River, and that was one of the major routes if you were going from Galilee to Jerusalem or from Jerusalem to Galilee, uh, comes down along the Jordan River and then crosses the Jordan River again uh, about uh, where Jericho would be and uh, spend some time there. And then coming out of Jericho, he would have traveled through the Judean wilderness, finally coming to Bethany and Bethphage just outside Jerusalem, and then finally to Jerusalem. So um, that's his physical journey, okay? That's the physical road that Jesus uh, walked. And now, for a man who was um, intent on making good time, how many of you have ever traveled somewhere with a man who's intent on making good time? All right, you have? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I see people pointing at people all over, right? And uh, husbands shrinking down in their pews, right? You know what it's like, right? Some uh, kid in the back row, are we there yet? You know, we'll get there when we get there, right? And and then someone says, I got to go to the bathroom. And you're like, hold it! And then uh, some little voice says, "I'm hungry. We haven't eaten." And then you're reaching down in the car seat and come up with this crushed uh, three-year-old bag of crackers, and you toss it in the back seat. Right here, this will tide you over, right? <laughs> you know, you know what it's like with a man who's intent. Well, that doesn't seem to be Jesus on this trip. All right, he—he he, seems. If we—if we look at everything. That, uh, that happens on this trip over the next 10 chapters and, and in the other gospels as well. It looks like Jesus was taking his time on this trip, and it may have taken a couple of weeks, two, three weeks uh, of his time to get there on this trip. And so, so now we're going to look a little bit more closely at this account and see what the spiritual road to Jerusalem was like for Jesus and, and see if we can draw out some spiritual lessons from this road trip that Jesus took for us. Now would you pause for a minute now as we look at it and pray with me? God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your spirit, God. We open our hearts to you, God. Please speak to us this morning. Have your way in our hearts and give us insight and wisdom into your word. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. And everyone said? Amen. 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 All right. So let's begin here at Luke chapter 9. All right. And as we catch up with Jesus, at the beginning of Luke chapter 9, we find that we are, are approaching the time when Jesus would begin his last trip to Jerusalem. And so we see the first nine verses, Jesus sends out the 12 to do ministry. And then verses 10 to 17, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And then then comes the famous scene when Jesus asked what everyone was saying about him. So the idea is this. He had sent out the 12, and now they were coming back, and Jesus is saying, okay, when you were out ministering in all these areas, uh, what was everybody saying about me? Who do they say that I am? And, you know, some said... uh, uh, John the Baptist, others said Elijah, but we know Peter, well, Jesus said, well, who do you all say that I am? And of course, Peter made the famous statement, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And uh, that's awesome, right? I mean, because Peter got it right. God had revealed it to him. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. But even though they understood who he was, that he was the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God, they didn't really understand what that meant. Because you see, there was, this, there was this big cultural misunderstanding about the Messiah. The idea, the idea of the Messiah was very strong in their culture, uh, and uh, uh, this idea that uh, God was going to send his Messiah and restore Israel, and with the oppression of the Roman People, the oppression of the Roman government and the puppet governments of the Herods, there was also the strong belief that God was going to send the Messiah soon. There was a high expectation that the Messiah would appear soon. And however, almost universally, the belief was in a conquering, victorious, military Messiah who would overthrow the Roman government and assume the kingship of Israel and restore Israel as the chief among the nations. That was their idea. Now, they weren't entirely off base, right? Because there were Old Testament prophecies that talked a lot about this kind of Messiah. However, what they missed was this. They missed all of the Old Testament prophecies that talked about a suffering servant Messiah who would come first. It's described in Psalm 22, in Isaiah chapter 53, and in other places. (coughs) And this, this is why Jesus, we find him often telling his disciples not to tell people that he was the Messiah during the course of his ministry because he knew that if he and his disciples went around telling everyone that Jesus is the Messiah, that everyone would understand him to be saying that he is here to overthrow the Roman government and set up an earthly kingdom. That's what they would have understood. So Jesus uh, didn't allow that for quite some time and then uh, uh, because he had bigger plans. He was here to overthrow the kingdom of darkness. And dethrone the ruler of this age and establish the kingdom of light in the hearts of people. And so, immediately after Jesus affirms to them that yes, he is the Messiah, he begins to explain to them what being the Messiah meant. Look at it in verse 21, the next verses. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. And we know from one of the gospel accounts that Peter, I mean, this was so foreign to him uh, that he says, No, Lord, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. And, and, and he said that because, um, you know, in his view, the Messiah would conquer and reign. The Messiah couldn't die. And, uh, um, so he's, but Jesus is getting ready to go to Jerusalem for the last time, and he wants them to understand why he's going. He's getting ready for this last road trip, and he wants to prepare their hearts for what is going to happen. And then we see in the next several verses, Jesus explains the cost of being the disciples. We must deny ourselves. We must lose our lives for him in order to save our lives. We must not be ashamed of him. And and then a short time later, there's this account of the transfiguration. You all love transfiguration, right? That's when Jesus took, you know, James and John and Peter up on on the mountain, and uh, all of a sudden, Jesus goes all glorious on them. All right, and uh, he lights up, and his clothes light up, and his face light up, and all of a sudden, uh, Moses and Elijah appear. And, and Peter says, Peter's all excited, and he says, uh, uh, Lord, it's so good for us to be here. How about if we just, uh, I'll make some tents for you and Moses and Elijah, and we can, we can just hang out a while? You know? and, uh, uh, and all of a sudden, the voice comes from heaven and says, uh, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And what's cool about that is this is the second time a voice comes from heaven. The first time at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he says, This is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. He wanted everybody around to know he's well pleased. But here with just a few disciples and Jesus getting ready to go to to Jerusalem for the last time, God says to these disciples, Listen to him. You are right. He is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. Listen to him. Hear him. Hear what he has to say. Hear what he is telling you. Open up your hearts and hear what God has to say. And then they came down from the mountain, right? Is that it? Did I get everything? Is that the whole story? No, I intentionally left something out. I left one verse out. And the reason I left it out is because almost every Sermon and every uh, teaching I've heard on this passage kind of leaves this out, and uh, I'm not sure why, but because it's actually the key to understanding the passage. It's the key to understanding why Moses and Eliza showed up in the first place, and it's found here in verse 31, and it says they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jer- Jerusalem. So the whole reason that Jesus was glorified was so that he could speak with Moses and Elijah about his departure. That's why Moses and Elijah showed up. Jesus is getting ready for his last road trip. He knows that suffering and death are at the end of the road, and uh, even his closest friends don't seem to be able to understand it. And so the Father sends Moses and Elijah to talk to him about it. You know, sometimes don't you just feel like you just need somebody who who, who knows what you're going through, who understands you to talk things through, right? Someone who understands what you're facing to talk with. And while the transfiguration of Jesus reminds us that he is, in fact, 100% God, I think this conversation with Moses and Elijah reminds us, at the same time, that he's also 100% human. And so if you sometimes feel like you just need someone to talk to, you know what, I believe that Jesus understands that. Because as much as he tried to explain it to his disciples, none of them seemed to be able to understand what he was facing at the end of this last rose. And so it seems like the Father sends Moses and Elijah to talk to him about it. And then as we go on, we see the next day, there's this awesome account of uh, the, uh, uh, they they come there and there's this this, uh, boy who's who's demon-possessed and he's mute. And the disciples can't cast it out. And so Jesus casts out the demon, and he gives the boy back to his parents. And, uh, but I want you to catch something really important. It says that while everyone was marveling, and they were all amazed at what had happened, Jesus called his disciples close because he had something important he wants to tell them. He says, verse 44, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. First the father said, listen to him. Now Jesus is saying to them, listen carefully catch the scene. Everyone's celebrating. Everyone's amazed. Everyone's rejoicing. And Jesus turns from that to have this quick sidebar conversation with his disciples. He says, listen carefully. This is important. He wants them to get it. The crowds aren't ready for this, but he wants the disciples to hear it. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. So he's re-emphasizing what he told them about a week and a half ago. The Son of Man is going to suffer and be rejected and killed, and on the third day, rise again. And it says, verse 45, but they did not understand what he meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it. And so we come to verse 51, and it says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He resolutely set out. This is not just another road trip. This is is not a Sunday drive with with a picnic at the end. It's the last road trip. He resolutely set out. He was determined. Nothing was going to get in his way. He was determined to finish the mission that the Father had sent him to accomplish. And so here he is beginning the road trip. He's getting on a toll road. He knows that there's a price to pay at the end of this road. And as he begins this road trip, we see in chapter 10, he sends out the 72 disciples to every place that he's about to go. Uh, He sends them out two by two, uh, and uh, it will be the last time that he goes through many of these places. It's the last time many of them will ever see him. And so he wants to give them a chance to get ready to say, hey, I'm coming. This is an important trip. And as we look at the rest of this journey, at the rest of the road trip, I want you to notice three things. About this trip. The first is that this is a courageous road. If you're taking notes, that, that's kind of your uh, a point you want to write down. It's a courageous road because Jesus was aware that there was opposition to him in Jerusalem. He was aware that the chief priests were already plotting a way to kill him. At one point, the gospels say that when he told his disciples that they were going back up to Jerusalem, they tried to dissuade him, saying, Rabbi, you know, they just tried to stone you there, and yet you're going back? And when it became apparent that that Jesus wouldn't be dissuaded, uh, uh, it says that Thomas said somewhat sarcastically to the rest of the disciples, well, let us go up also so that we can die with him. They knew it was dangerous for Jesus in Jerusalem. And Jesus not only knew that it was dangerous, but he knew that he was, in fact, going to die there. At the beginning of his ministry, he had said um, things like uh, uh, he had come to seek and to save what was lost, and throughout his ministry, he had said things like the Son of Man came to, to give his life as a ransom for many, and now on this last trip, he warned the disciples at least three times that in Jerusalem, he would be arrested and handed over and executed. Jesus is not on some type of misguided delusion of grandeur here. He knows full well what is awaiting for him at the end of this road trip. And as he looks down the road, he sees the opposition of the leaders. He sees the betrayal of a close friend. He sees his arrest. He sees his closest friends abandoning him. He sees a mockery of a trial and false witnesses saying false things about him. He sees himself being handed over to Pilate, the Roman governor. He sees himself being whipped by the Roman guards. He sees the people rejecting him and crying out for Barabbas instead, a career criminal. And he sees the crucifixion. He sees all of it. And yet, with amazing courage, he keeps moving forward to Jerusalem, keeps moving in the direction of the cross. Each day, another step closer to the cross. Say, so what do you think about when you think about courage? You know, examples of courage that, that you've known, that, that you've seen. You know, I'm sure some images come to your mind, but can I tell you, whatever images of human courage that have come to your mind, that come to my mind, none of them compares with the courage that Jesus displayed as he was walking this last road to Jerusalem. Every step filled with courage that was fueled by an amazing, incredible love. Love for those who did not love him. Love for those who would reject him. Love for those who would kill him. It was a courageous road. Jesus walked a courageous road for us. Secondly, it was a lonely road. Although Jesus is often on this road surrounded by by many people, sometimes thousands of people, it seems as though he is the only one who really understands the journey that he's on. Have you ever felt lonely in a crowd? You know, you're in a crowd of people, and yet you feel all alone, you know, uh, because... Only you know, you know, what you're going through and what you're facing, and and you just kind of feel all alone. Uh, You know, there are great crowds all around Jesus, but they're completely oblivious to what's going on in his heart. And you can tell by the stories along the way, you know, one guy comes up to Jesus asking him, uh, Jesus, Lord, make my brother, you know, divide the inheritance uh, equally with me. You know, would you really have asked um, Jesus that? I mean, if you knew what was about to happen. I mean, how many of you have ever walked into a room and said something completely inappropriate? You know, I mean, it's happened to me. I remember one time several years ago, walked into the church office, and I think I heard some silly joke or something, and I thought it was really funny. So I walked into the church office um, conference room, lunch room, and all of that, and, uh, and just blurted out, there was a bunch of people, just blurted out this silly joke. And as they turned and looked at me, like, every one of them had, like, tears in their eyes. And it wasn't because the joke was bad, right? It's <laughs> something... It was obvious something tragic had happened, right? And have you ever wished you could just rewind about 10 seconds and do them over? Well, I felt like I, if I could just rewind 10 seconds and do that over, right? Uh, completely inappropriate. Well, if this guy knew that Jesus was about to give up everything for him, would, would, he, would he have come and asked Jesus, hey, uh, make my brother divide the estate with me? You know, and another guy, another guy on the road, he's trying to get Jesus to justify his unforgiving spirit. Now, try to think about it from Jesus' perspective for a minute. I mean, he's about to go to the cross. He's about to give up his life to forgive this person who's looking at him, trying to get Jesus to justify his unforgiveness. It's a lonely road. Some accuse him of having a demon. The Pharisees and teachers of the law, some of them are following him, and they're dogging him with questions, trying to trap him. And the disciples, they seem equally clueless. Every time he tries to explain it to them, they don't get it. Its meaning is is hidden from them. And they're so entrenched in this idea of a conquering Messiah that when Jesus tells them plainly that he's going to die, they don't know what it means and end up spiritualizing it. It says that they discuss the matter among themselves and discuss what rising from the dead meant. Rising from the dead What could that mean? Uh, Jesus is talking plainly to them. He's not using parables and and mysterious language. He's telling them what's going to happen. You can mark it down. You know, when you have your own ways, you know, and some path that you've said, I'm going to go this way, even though the Bible says do it this way or have this attitude, I'm going to go this way, what you end up doing is over-spiritualizing things in the Bible that are are just plainly written. Well, that must mean something else. That really can't mean this because I want to act this way. It's really quiet. You all know what I'm talking about, right? You know, because you want to go your own way and God's dealing with you. The Spirit of God is dealing with you and, uh, and, uh, and he's saying, no, walk this way, act this way, right? And you, Well, that must mean something else. God must really be talking to me, you know, but that's what you end up doing. That's what the disciples did. What does rising from the dead mean? It's no wonder that Jesus had such sorrow over Jerusalem. Like Moses before him, after, after all that time in the wilderness and all the glory of God that was there, he's about to die, and he looks at them and says, I know that after I leave, you're going to forsake God. Like Joshua, after the conquest of, of Israel, <coughs> after the conquest of Canaan, and he looks at them and says, choose you this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. But then he looks at them and says, I don't, I don't think you can I mean, and if you look at that, that is one of the, the, the most incredible scenes. He's got all of Israel gathered, you know, and he says, "I'm going to serve the Lord, but I don't think you can." It would be like if some at the, some altar call. We're about to have an altar call, and you're all ready to come down, and 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 I and I said, "Stop! I don't think you can." Uh, what would you think of that? You're coming down, you're responding to something. He's, "I just go back. Yeah, you you can't do this." I mean, that's kind of what Joshua was saying, right? Uh, because they didn't have the spirit of God and. Uh, And so Jesus now, having spent three years pouring into them, teaching them, being with them, performing miracles and healings among them, and and still it seems as though no one understands, though seeing they don't see, though hearing they don't hear, and so it says that Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children as as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. It was a lonely road that Jesus was walking. Say, have you ever walked a lonely road? You know, there are times in your life when you may walk a lonely road. When you pay a price for doing something that you know is right, and no one else sees it. Or if they do see it, they don't understand it. They think you're a little bit crazy for paying that price, for doing what is right, for doing the right thing. Or they can't see the price you're paying uh, for doing what's right, and you feel alone. Can I tell you, you are not alone. God is with you. Even if you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God is with you. And Jesus walked the lonely road before you. And even if no one else understood, even if no one else could walk the way he did, he knew that the Father was with him. He knew that he was not abandoned. Jesus walked the lonely road for us. And then thirdly, it was a fruitful road. It was a fruitful road. In spite of the opposition, in spite of the complaining, and the traps, and uh, the loneliness, in spite of everything that was coming, it was one of the most fruitful times in Jesus' ministry. There was fruitful teaching. Jesus gave some of the greatest teachings on this road. We have the teachings of the Good Samaritan, the teachings on prayer, on, on worry, teachings on being watchful and ready for Jesus' return, a, The parable of the mustard seed and the narrow door. uh, The parable of the great banquet and the prodigal son and the lost sheep and the lost coin. uh, um, Teachings on the cost of being a disciple and uh, the rich man and Lazarus. And the parable of the persistent widow. All these teachings and many more we have because of this road that Jesus walked to Jerusalem. Some of the greatest teachings ever given. And Jesus also engaged in fruitful ministry to people on this road to Jerusalem. He cast out a demon. Uh, of a mute person, and he spoke, and in some places along this road, he ministered to thousands of people at one time, Say, you know what that tells me? Jesus has enough power to meet everybody's needs. You know, sometimes I hear people say, Pastor, well, you know, my need's not so important, you know, because there's just so many others, you know, let them go. Can I tell you, uh, don't do that with Jesus, right, because he has more than enough power to meet everybody's need. You know, sometimes you may feel like, well, that person's got a greater need. Uh, Yeah, go ahead and pray for them, but bring your need also uh, to him. And then, at other times, it says that he ministered to individual people, one-on-one. You know what that tells me? Jesus has enough love to look you right in the eye, to know exactly where you are and minister to your specific needs. You know, I've heard some people say, well, you know... um, I'm just not important. You know, God, uh, uh, you know, he's got so many other important things to do. You know, I remember once, uh, uh, oh, 30 years ago, and I was working in a convenience store, and uh, someone who worked there is, um, was somewhat older, and she said her, her young daughter said to her, um, was praying for something and asked God for some thing in her life, some little child thing, and she said, yeah, I told her. She said, oh, don't ask him that. He's too busy for that. And I said, oh, my goodness, don't tell her that. Can I say something? God is big enough to keep the entire universe going, all the world spinning right, all the galaxies spinning right, and uh, uh, everything going right here to line up all prophecy here uh, in the world and to to make all of those things happen and take care of all of the big, uh, huge events in the world and take care of simple needs. How many times have I heard people say, you know, I looked everywhere, And I couldn't find my keys, and I finally stopped and prayed and said, "God, would you please help me find my keys?" And then, bing, there it was. God uh, put it in your. How many of you had something like that happen? Right, a whole bunch of you. Whether it's your keys or something else, right? Some little thing. Listen, the idea that the God of the universe, you know, with all of these other important things happening, can go, "Oh yeah, your keys are right over there." That is totally awesome. That is God showing off. You know, but why should we be surprised at that, right? When he says, I know how many hairs are on your head. And he knows the difference between how many hairs were there yesterday and today. (coughs) We have that kind of amazing, awesome God. Amen. Jesus healed a woman who had been crippled for 18 years. On this trip he ate he ate with people in their homes he healed 10 men at once who had leprosy all at one time with a word uh, he didn't even get near them uh, he made time for children you know his disciples were were hindering those from bringing children and stopping people and it says that jesus rebuked them and said let the little children come to me for if such is the kingdom of heaven you know don't you like that that jesus has time for children jesus loves children Then as he was approaching Jerusalem, he heals this blind man on the way into Jericho, as he was approaching Jericho, and uh, while he's in Jericho, he stays at, at blesses the home of a tax collector of all people. He loves sinners. Jesus loves sinners. You know, some, uh, the the Pharisees were always upset he's talking to sinners. You know, if Jesus didn't talk to sinners, who'd he talk to? I mean, who would he talk to, right? Uh, There'd be no one for him to talk to. Jesus loves sinners. And then as he's leaving Jericho, it says that he healed two blind men on his way out of Jericho. It was a time of fruitful ministry. It was a courageous road, it was a lonely road, and it was a fruitful road. So now here, as we're leaving Jericho, Jesus traveled from the north side all the way from Galilee, through Samaria, across the Jordan, south along the Jordan, across to Jericho. Well, now we're leaving Jericho. I want to zoom in a little bit more. And look at this road a little bit more closely as Jesus is entering the last leg of his road to Jerusalem. It's been a courageous and a lonely and a fruitful road. Now, Jericho is often called the city of palms, right? It was an oasis city in the middle of the Judean wilderness. Um, here, let me show you a few pictures of that, what it looked like. There's the one, one picture there. There's another one. Uh, isn't it a lovely place? Wouldn't you like to go for a little vacation there? It's not a friendly place. This would be the most arduous and difficult part Of Jesus' road trip. It was about 18 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem. And it begins about 800 feet below sea level, and it ends about 3,000 feet above sea level. And it would take him about a day, all day, going uphill through a dry, rugged, unforgiving wilderness with few sources of water. Uh, And not only that, this was a familiar wilderness. This is the same wilderness, the same Judean wilderness, that the Spirit drove him to at the beginning of his ministry. This is the same wilderness where the devil had come to tempt him. you suppose that Jesus is just recalling uh, some of that, some of those temptations as he's passing by there again, the temptation to avoid the cross, the temptation to to put himself first, and and all the way his disciples are in his ear saying, you know, why go to Jerusalem? They want to kill you there. He's passing through this valley of the wilderness, the valley of temptation, again, the road to Jerusalem. And finally, he arrives at Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, and just outside Jerusalem, and we're now approaching this last leg of this road to Jerusalem. And all along the way, he's had the opportunity to change his mind. He knew, he knew this was a toll road when he got on it, and uh, he had plenty of opportunity to get off it if he wanted to. I mean, he could have got off at Samaria, he could have got off at Perea, he could have gotten off at Jericho and now he's at Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And this is just a couple miles outside of Jerusalem. And this is the last exit before the toll road. This is the last opportunity Jesus has to get off this road. And so we come to the triumphal entry of Jesus. And so I want to kind of conclude today by looking just a little bit at this last, very last part of the last leg of the journey. And it says that As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus said to his disciples, Sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey there, tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. And it says that the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, the crowd that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And and we love that scene, right? I mean, everyone is praising, everyone's excited, they're they're, they're laying palm branches down, they're shouting in victory, and they're thinking, here comes the Messiah! Here comes the Messiah! And, And this is really the first time that Jesus is allowing anything like this to happen. He's letting them shout this this Hosanna to the son of David. Before, he had told uh, people not to tell anyone he was the Messiah. Before, it was, you know, don't tell anybody. But now he's allowing it. The entire crowd is hailing him as the Messiah. As a matter of fact, the Gospel writer goes on to say this, um, that all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. It says, say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And, and this is exciting. I mean, because Scripture is literally being fulfilled right before their very eyes. But I want, to take a, just, I want you to take a little closer look at what's happening here. Because you may not be aware, but Jesus was not the first person to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, claiming to be the Messiah. This was a well-known messianic verse. It was well-known in the Jewish culture that when the Messiah came, he would ride in on a donkey at Passover. And history records for us that there were a number of other occasions when someone who believed themselves to be the Messiah would gather a group of people around themselves and ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, and inevitably the Romans would have to put down an uprising, arrest them, maybe uh, execute the alleged Messiah. But I want you to see what is different here. The false messiahs would ride in triumphantly with their heads held high, with their chests puffed out, uh, as hundreds of people around them sang their praises, but as Jesus wrote in, he wept. He hung his head and wept. His face is downcast, and, and tears come to his eyes because he's concerned for the spiritual condition of those that he loves. The false messiahs came in expecting to be crowned king. Jesus expected a crown of thorns. The false messiah is expected to live the good life after they expelled the Romans. Jesus expected to give up his life at the hands of the Romans. The false messiah is expected to overthrow the Roman government, but Jesus expected to overthrow the kingdom of darkness. What a contrast this is. Everyone is shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Everyone's proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah and expecting him to overthrow the Romans. And Jesus is saying, yes, I am the son of David. I am the Messiah. But I am the suffering, serving, servant Messiah. And I have walked this road to Jerusalem because I love the world so much. And so here ends this road to Jerusalem. It's a courageous road. It's a lonely road. It's a fruitful road. And now it's a completed road. And he walked it for us. He walked it because he loves you. He walked it because he wants you to be with him forever. He walked it because he will redeem you. He will pay the ultimate price for you so here he comes to the end of the road uh, to Jerusalem. The journey doesn't end there, for the end of this road is the beginning of another road. It's the final road in Jesus' life. It's the road to the cross and beyond that we will be looking at next week on Easter Sunday. So right now, if you would just stand with me. And I just kind of feel this morning that our response, as I've ended just a few minutes early, our response should be a response of worship. When we consider what Jesus did for us, how He walked this road for us, how courageous He was because of His love for us, our response should be to cry out to God. We can cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King, really understanding what Jesus did. The first time it happened, when Jesus went in, they didn't really understand what his being the Messiah meant. But we understand it. So I'm going to pray in just a second. I'm going to ask God if you would just take a few minutes and worship with us. And they're going to sing that song one more time, Here I Am to Worship. After that, you'll be dismissed, and uh, I'll be available uh, for prayer. If you have other things that you want prayer for, it's my joy to pray for you. We can do that uh, as well. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness, and your mercies to us. Jesus, thank you for this road to Jerusalem that you walked for us. God, because you loved us so much, God. Father, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see what you're saying to us, God, and what you're doing in our hearts and in our lives, God. And God, we just pray that you now fill us. Fill us. Fill us again with your Holy Spirit, God, as we spend just a couple minutes in worship, God. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Let us worship together, shall we? Amen. Here I am to worship. Here I am yes, to worship.